Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Oh, it is so good to be back with you. Uh, my family and I, we had a, a great time on a vacation last week, some much needed rest and renewal, and um, it is good to be back. It is also good that this is our last Sunday meeting outside. Uh, I just want to say, number one, uh, next week we're going to be having a sale on ports. Um, and number two, I'm just really grateful for our team that has faithfully set up and reset up. Just done an awesome, awesome job. Hey, um, do you remember, it was uh, about a year ago when our world shut down. You remember that? And our, our calendars were instantly cleared and our lives catapulted into what felt like disarray. And almost immediately, normal became a thing of the past. I mean, there were some changes that we welcomed, a little bit slower pace of life, more walks around the block, some more time as family. And then there were some challenges, weren't there? Um, our favorite outings were shut down. Masks were required in many places. Social distancing was now a thing. And almost immediately, I started to think and pray and long for things to just get back to normal. Anybody with me? And as I was starting to have that thought and that prayer, almost immediately somebody piped up and said, no, 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 no. We're not going back to normal. It's going to be a new normal, new normal. And I heard people starting to dodge new normal. And I don't know about you, but I got a little bit sick of that phrase, new normal. And then a few weeks ago, I was driving into work. I just dropped my kids off and I was listening to my news app on my way into work. And it was right after the shootings happened in Boulder, Colorado. And the newscaster said, when we talked about getting back to normal, this isn't what we had in mind. And I thought, yeah, he's right. He's right. And I started to ask myself this question. Why are we trying so hard to get back to something that was so fractured, so, so, so broken? Why? I mean, in so many ways, our lives were over busy. We were stressed out. I talked to so many people, had a hard time paying the bills and families struggling and and I just started to have this thought in my mind that solidified the idea for this series that normal for so many people wasn't working. It wasn't getting the job done. It, but it's normal and it's comfortable and it's known. And so we long to go back to that space. But what if, what if, what if God has something better for us? Something not so new and not so normal. Something that's old and ancient. Something that's, well, weird, strange. I mean, following Jesus is anything but normal. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet and you're here today, I just want you to know we're a bunch of weirdos. I mean, Peter wrote about the churches and he said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He said that we are a peculiar people. We're a little bit strange. We march to the beat of our own drum. We do things a little bit different. We have a different set of values and a, a different guiding principle for our life. We're different. We're not normal. <laughs> and 
this journey with Jesus isn't new. So let me ask you a question. Are you willing to let go of normal? Are you willing to let go of of normal? To follow Jesus into something that's not so new and not so normal. See, that was true for the church from the very beginning, from its inception. It was a a different kind of community. It was a, a different kind of group of people. From its very beginning, from its birth, it was distinct and different. And today what I want to do is look at the birth story, not of an individual, but of a church. Now, if you have kids, my guess is you have birth stories. You have stories about the way that these kids were born, the way that they came into the world, and the circumstances that surrounded that glorious day. Uh, My my family has a a number of those. We have three kids, and we have three different birth stories, but the most notable was the birth of our son, Ethan. We were living here in Escondido at the time, and it was a Friday, and I remember because my wife and I were going out on a date that night, and we were going to Chili's, which is the new golf course, by the way. We were going to Chili's, and I was looking forward to a bacon cheeseburger with everything in me. And we drove past Palomar Hospital because we lived near it, and my wife said to me, I think I might be going into labor. And I said to her, do you mean after we go to dinner? (laughs) And she gave me that look, like the one she's giving to me now. And so we pulled into the hospital at Palomar and went and the doctor checked her out and said, it seems like the umbilical cord is wrapped around your son's neck and every time you have a contraction as small as they are, his blood pressure, you're not leaving the hospital without a baby. And I said, so we need to go to Chili's right now, (laughs) then come back so we can have this baby. And she looked at me and said, you get out of this room right now. (laughs) And sure enough, that that, that night, I held my newborn son, Ethan, for the very first time. And every year on his birthday, we tell him that same story. And every year, I remind him that he owes me a hamburger. (laughs) But it's a story that we love to keep telling because the way that he came into the world in so many ways is part of his story. And the story that we're going to read about today is the birth story, not of an individual, but of a church. And it's a story that in so many ways, if you're a part of the church, is part of your spiritual DNA. This this story is in your bones. If you were to do a spiritualancestry.com, you would find this event in your family tree. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'd invite you to open with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of context for where we're going to be camping out today. Acts chapter 2 follows Acts chapter 1. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. Now, Jesus, after hearing his disciples and apostles about the kingdom of God, he then told them not to leave Jerusalem, but to stay there until the promised Holy Spirit came. And he said that it was so important that they stay and receive the Holy Spirit because in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then remember, Jesus was ascended, and Pastor Josh did a great job talking about the viral victory of Jesus that the ascension points to. He talked about that last week. And the disciples waited, and they waited, and they waited. For 10 days after Jesus ascended, they waited. And that's where we pick up the story of Jesus delivering on his promise. 
and a birth happened. And in many ways, this birth was a lot like a, a human birth. It was messy. It was filled with drama. It was a little bit chaotic because something new was coming into existence. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Are you there? Wonderful. It says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, now quick time out. Luke wants us to know what day this happened on because it's really, really important. That word Pentecost means 50th. It's the 50th day following Passover. It was one of three pilgrim feasts that the Israelite people celebrated, who'd then spread out all over the known world at the time, came back to Jerusalem in order to celebrate this feast. And what they were celebrating on Pentecost was Moses receiving the law from God on Mount Sinai. That was what the celebration and the festival was all about. So that day when Moses received the Ten Commandments from the Lord, the law from the Lord, that was the day that the nation of Israel was, was birthed. I mean, those are their articles of incorporation. This was their, their guiding DNA and ethos. And in the same way that the law was given to the old covenant believers, so the new covenant believers received the Spirit. Same day. What? A coincidence, or maybe not. Here's the way the story goes. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and there filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in their tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I would argue that this is one of the most important events that has ever happened in the history of the world. And it happened while these disciples and apostles, did you catch what they were doing? Because Luke tells you what they were doing when the Spirit came. They were sitting. Sitting. As if to say, ah, they're not necessarily praying, they're not worshiping, and they're not crying out, God, send your Spirit. They're just sitting. He wants you to hear that the coming of the Spirit is not something that the church coerced out of God's hands. It's a gift. He's a gift that's given to the church. Pure gift. And there's two metaphors that Luke uses in order to describe what happens giving of this gift. And both metaphors point us to the fact that this is a birth. Number one, he uses this metaphor of wind. He says, or, or simile, he says it was like a mighty rushing wind. In the Greek, this word wind is noe, and the root word is the same as that of, of pneuma, which is spirit, spirit, or wind, or breath. Now, if you were to rewind, and if this was written in Hebrew instead of in Greek, they would have, well, in fact, that's just too fun for me to say alone. I feel like we all need to say that on three, ruach, one, two, three, Ruach, yeah, and it literally meant wind or breath or spirit, and the people of God had a history with this word. In fact, you can go back to page one of the Bible and see where God's Ruach does a great work. It says this, Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and darkness over the face of the deep, and the spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. See, friends, in the beginning, 
Ruach was a creative, moving, dynamic, life-giving breath of God that brought something, creation, out of nothing, a void. It was a, a birth, the birth of our, of our world. But you can go back to, or go one page forward in Genesis chapter 2, we see Ruach at work again, that the Lord God formed the man from dust of the ground and breathed, ruched into his nostrils, the Ruach, the breath of life and creature, a living being. Yet spirit or wind is blown into Adam's lungs, signifying that without God's breath, he is just simply a clump of dead matter. In order for Adam to have life, he needed God's breath in him. And in so many ways, Acts chapter 2 is pointing us back to this original creation. The wind symbolized the coming of the creative power of God to inaugurate a new era where men and women would be brought to spiritual life through the giving of the Spirit of God. But that wasn't the only metaphor that was used. Luke used another one. He said it was as of tongues of fire that appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Now, if you're an old covenant believer, a faithful follower of God, you're going, well, fire, that sounds really familiar also. As they're celebrating Pentecost, they're remembering what happened with Moses going up onto the mountain to receive the law from God. And do you know what was up on the mountain waiting for him? Fire! Exodus chapter 19, verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended, descended on it in fire. The same day, God was symbolized in fire. Holy, refining, powerful presence that met Moses on this mountain. Friends, this is our birth story. This is our origin story. We are people who have wind and fire in our bones. These are symbols of new creation. And we're reading about the birth of the church. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this story is in your spiritual DNA. In the same way that you carry the DNA of your parents and that it shapes who you are and who you become, we carry this story in our bones. It's a part of who we are. As Paul claimed and wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, God is no longer writing with ink on stone tablets. No, he's now writing with spirit on human hearts. Would you write this down? Would you write this down? That through the promised spirit, we walk in God's presence and power. That in the same way the early church received the person of the Holy Spirit, we too, being followers of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And because of that, we walk in God's presence and God's power. It is a part of our spiritual DNA. We can be spirit-filled. However, we often struggle with that, don't we? I mean, in so many ways, you see the church oscillate between two polarities. On one side, you see the Spirit. And then on the other side, you see churches that silence the Spirit. Uh, you probably have seen it, churches that sensationalize the Spirit. I mean, some weird things happen, right? I've seen churches that sensationalize the Spirit, and there's like barfing in the Spirit, and there's 
fire tunnels and there's all sorts of strange things and you see some theologies that develop that you just go, I don't know where they got that. Theology's like, well, if you just have enough faith, certainly God will heal all the time, 100% of the time. And so if he doesn't heal, it's because you don't have enough faith. And I think people have had bad experiences in places like that. And so then the pendulum swings to the other side and we go, no, 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 no. We don't want anything to do with the spirit. Like to quote Francis Chan, the, the Holy Spirit is often the forgotten God. We develop a new trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. But the Holy Spirit's like the weird uncle. We don't want him showing up at Thanksgiving. I think the A.W. Tozer's scathing rebuke of the modern church is all too often accurate. He said this, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of we, what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. The Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church. 95% of what they did would stop and everyone would know the difference. Wow. Silencing or sensationalizing. What's the better way? What if instead of silencing or sensationalizing, we do what the early church did, which was surrender, submit to the Spirit? Now, please hear me. Please hear me. I am not saying that the events that happened at Pentecost need to be repeated over and over and over again. No, they're unique. They're a birth story. No, they don't happen again in the scriptures. They don't need to be repeated and they don't necessarily need to be expected today. However, however, what I am saying is that we live with the effects and the DNA of what happened on Pentecost so many years ago. We are a Pentecost people We can be filled with the Spirit today, and when we are, we live beyond normal, beyond normal. Yeah, when a baby's born, the doctors and nurses, they do oftentimes what's called an APGAR test. They they try to do an analysis of the, the health of the baby, and in so many ways, they're looking for what signs of life are there, and we're gonna see a spiritual APGAR test in a sense, the signs of life that happen as this church is birthed, or of Acts chapter two. It says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I mean, can you imagine this? That you don't speak this language and then you're hearing the gospel in your own language from somebody who didn't know how to speak it a few moments ago. And they were amazed. You think? And astonished, saying, are not all these who speak in Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked and said, They are filled with new wine. And so because the church is alive, she starts speaking. She starts speaking. Now, 
You may be aware of this, you may not be. Uh, there's no shortage of debate about tongues. Okay? That, that's just a reality. But the debate about tongues is not around this text. This, the tongues in Acts chapter 2 are the supernatural ability to speak an intelligible language that you haven't learned so that people who don't yet know Jesus can hear about him. That's what it is in Acts chapter 2. I mean, verse 12 makes it really clear. We hear them telling in our own language the mighty works of God. And I think it's just, it's so sad that there's so much debate around the methodology of tongues and very little discussion about the substance of tongues. That the substance was what was important. Oh, people are hearing the good news of the gospel. People are hearing about the grace and love of Jesus. People are hearing that Jesus Christ was dead three days and walked out of the grave with new life in his hands. That was the purpose of the tongues that were given in Acts chapter 2. And here we see that the Spirit was given. And if you'd write this down, this is important for us, that there was a power to proclaim. A power to proclaim, to proclaim the message of Jesus. This message was so powerful through Peter that 3,000 people believed the gospel in one day and the Lord added to their number daily after that. Days be to God. I mean, that's a mega church overnight. Can you imagine the logistical nightmare around that? I can. I can. And you may be wondering, okay, why are all these countries, if you count them, 15 different countries listed, what's the deal? In so many ways, what happens is we see this snapshot of the known world at the time, moving from east to west, south to north. We see nations from all over the known world represented and hearing the gospel in their own language and then subsequently taking the gospel back to their people. These are the initial seeds of the gospel going forth to all the nations of the earth. So from its very inception, the church has been a missionary people. They have been people taking the good news to others, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of language, and declaring to people, you are welcome here. You don't have to be colonized in order to believe the gospel. The gospel is contextualized to you. God is affirming your ethnicity and your language and everything that he put in you. And he's inviting you to step into the good news that Jesus has conquered death. From the very beginning, this is our story. We get to say to everybody on the face of the earth, welcome home. Welcome home. And listen to the way that Luke continues to record this birth story. He says this, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted his voice and addressed them. Now, just a quick time out. I wonder if the other 10 were looking at each other also going about this. And then they're like, let's pick the biggest screw up to be the first. Oh yeah, Peter, because 50 days earlier, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. And now he's standing up proclaiming the good news of the gospel. If you think you are too far gone, friends, the first proclaimer of the gospel publicly was Peter. Welcome home. Men of Judea, this is his message, and you who are dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. 
<laughs> Don't you love his reasoning? They're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock. <laughs> and he goes on to answer the question, what does this mean? And here's what he says this means, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he's saying, listen, there's history around what you're seeing happen. This is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave through Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit or my pneuma or my ruach on all flesh. And sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So here's what Peter says. The pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh was a prophecy that God is delivering on, a promise that he's keeping. And you might read through this and go, all right, well, Ryan, it doesn't say anything about the blood and the fire and the vapors of smoke and all of that happening. What's the What's the deal? And I would say, if you look at verse 20, actually tied to before the day of the Lord comes, that there's actually two events that are being talked about here. The first one is the pouring out of the Spirit happening immediately and signifying the, quote, last days, according to verse 17. But the second event will happen when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead and to set his kingdom reign on earth. The fulfillment, though, the fulfillment has three distinctives. Prophecy, dreams, which happen typically while you're asleep, and visions, which tend to happen while awake, and all happen because of the coming of the Spirit in power. So why give the church prophecy? Why give the church dreams and visions from the very beginning? Well, you have to imagine that this was a, a ragtag group of 120 people at the time, an offshoot sect of Judaism in so many ways, and they had to be thinking to themselves, is this thing really going to last? Like, like, are we going to make it? I mean, they've seen so many groups like this rise and fall, sort of like the Saturn car company. It springs onto the scene, then it's gone. Sorry if you drive a Saturn, right? Um, is, it, is this going to last? And so from the very beginning, God is instilling in his people, you are a people of mission. You are a people who I am going to stick with and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. From the beginning, God was infusing into this community and into our bones an expectation about future impact. He gave his power to proclaim, and I'd invite you to write this down, he gave his presence to guide. Now, I think the big category is is prophecy. It's, it's listed in verse 17 and in verse 18. And prophecy was a really, really important gift that was given to the early church. In fact, it was so important that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, and he said this, follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. Did you know that you're commanded to desire gifts of the Spirit? And he tells you which gifts to really desire and to really pray for. He says, especially prophecy. Especially prophecy. 
Do, do you eagerly desire prophecy? I mean, you might be wondering, okay, what exactly is prophecy, Ryan? I'm so glad you asked that because there's two different ways to look at prophecy. Number one is it's, it's a foretelling or a future looking. And the second way is it's a, it's a truth telling, a forth telling, if you will. Now, now, let me just dive into those a little bit because I think it's important as we understand this text and what's in our bones, okay? First is that it's future prophecy in the New Testament is typically an insight that's given by the Spirit of God to a believer, but it's often less about a prediction and it's more about preparation. It's about preparing somebody for what God is going to do. See, God used prophecy in the early church to warn people of a coming famine. He used prophecy in order to help direct Paul on his missionary journeys. And he used prophecy in the church at Caesarea to encourage the church. Philip had four daughters who were all prophetesses in the church. You can read about that in Acts chapter 21. Yeah, it was future looking, but it was also truth telling. It was about strengthening, encouraging, comforting, and confronting believers in order to move them more towards Jesus. I mean, prophecy might be seen in a word that you have for somebody or a verse that's heavy on your heart. It might be for your small group. It might be for an individual. It might be even for yourself. Prophecy is also seen in the way the church is called to stand in the gap for those who don't have a voice of their own to tell the truth about atrocities that are happening and to stand up for people who cannot stand up for themselves. That's what it means for us to be a prophetic people. Prophecy was so important in the early church that the apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and he said this, despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold on to what is good. Don't you love this balance? Don't categorically write off prophecies. That would be foolish. And don't accept every prophecy as gospel truth. That would be crazy. No, no, no. Test them. And he says, and then hold on to what's good. Uh, chew up the meat and spit up bones. That's what he says about prophecy. To be a discerning people, open to the spirit of God, shaping and directing our course as a body through the way that he speaks to people within the body. This is our origin story, friends. We have wind and fire in our bones. So what would this look like for us to be a community if it was not so new? Let's, let's rewind, rewind a few thousand years. And not so your people. There, there's three things that come to my mind as I, re, as I think about what does it look like to step into our origin story. Number one, number one. And I'd invite you to write these down. Number one is to confidently step out in the Spirit's power. To confidently step out in Spirit's power. And the way that we see the first church stepping out in the Spirit's power is declaring the mighty works of God. If it's been a long time since you've sensed God's power, it might also have been a long time since you told somebody about Jesus. So what would it look like this week to say, God, I believe that your presence 
and your power lives in me. I believe, Holy Spirit, that you live in me and that you want to use me in order to declare to others the mighty works, the grace, and the love, and the victory over sin and death that is in Jesus. Secondly, I think it looks like boldly confronting barriers with God. Boldly confronting barriers with gospel unity. Now, there are four barriers that are broken down on Pentecost, and each one of them is significant. The first one, we see that there's a, an ethnic and a language barrier broken down. That not all the people in the church spoke the th- same language, and yet everybody heard the gospel in their own language. We see immediately this homogenous principle that so many churches operate in broken down from the very beginning. Our message to those, especially in our community, if you live in Escondido, you know that in many ways we are a divided community and I believe that God wants to use the church in order to be a voice of unity and hope and life and goodness for us to declare to all people, regardless of what language you speak, you are welcome here and we have a message of hope for you to find a home in. And from the very beginning, that's what the church was doing. They broke down ethnic barriers, but the skin barrier they broke down was gender barriers. We saw that the spirit was poured out on both sons in a patriarchal society. That would not be what would have been expected. It would have been controversial. But the truth remains today, friends, that both men and women have the spirit of God living in them if they're followers of Jesus, and they are called to use their gifts to tell people about Jesus and to declare the mighty works of God. It's in our bones. The third barrier that was broken down is age. It says young and old. Young and old. And as we look towards the future in so many ways, these are things that we feel God pulling us into. But I want to tell you this, and I want to be clear about this. We don't have any desire to be a multi-generational church. We have every desire to be an intergenerational church. Multi-generation means that we have multiple generations all here who call Emmanuel Faith home. That's great. That's not what we're about. We want to be an intergenerational church where we have generations that are connected, generations that are sharing life, generations that are encouraging each other and walking each other in deep relationship where they can share their heart and challenge each other on the journey of life and faith. If you're older, we want you to rub off on the younger. And if you're younger, we want you to rub off on the older. We want to be an intergenerational church that together proclaims the gospel of Jesus. And finally, we see that we have servants and non-servants both who receive the spirit, the classes and socioeconomic systems that were so ingrained in their society are broken down at the inception of the church. In so many ways, we see the seeds of what Paul would write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if the ground is level at the foot of the cross, the ground should also be level in the church. What's normal is homogenous and hierarchical relationships. What's not normal is what we see happening in the early church. Finally, let me encourage you to courageously pursue the Spirit's guidance. Courageously pursue the Spirit's guidance. Or if you want to, you could write down courageously pursue prophecy. It's exactly what the early church received. 
God still uses dreams and visions and prophecy to point people to Jesus. You know that, right? I mean, that's happening all over the world where we see Muslims having visions and dreams about Jesus and being drawn to faith in him, but it also happens here. I'll share a story that I've shared on a number of different occasions, but, but it just applies to to share it again today. When uh, my wife Kelly and I were praying about whether or not we were going to continue in the process with faith, we were at this crossroads. And we were really praying because we were wrestling and we were struggling. See, our life in Colorado was everything that we had dreamed and prayed that it would be. And so we were thinking, okay, Lord, it doesn't make sense. Like, we're done. We're, like, this is somebody else's calling, not ours. And I had a meeting with one of my staff members that day, and she came into my office and she said, Ryan, last night I was just praying about what I wanted to talk to you about. And she said, I just asked Jesus to give me a question to ask you. And I went to bed. I didn't have a question. But then I woke up in the middle of the night, and God gave me a question to ask you. And I said, I don't want to hear it. No, I said, I... I said, well, lay it on me. And she said, Jesus wants me to ask you what it would look like for South Fellowship Church to accomplish its mission and vision without you as involved. And I went, wow. I hadn't told anybody on our staff except Larry Boatwright at that point in time that I was in conversation with Emmanuel Faith. Not one person. And she followed that up with, after I got that question, I just couldn't get back to sleep. And I kept trying, but I just felt like God has a word that he wants me to give. Just one word. And she said, I release. And my heart was beating fast. My palms were sweating. And I was sort of dreading going home to tell Kelly about this conversation. (laughs) And I always tell people, I'm not here because of a prophetic word, but I may not be here without one. But it was one of the things, one of the many things that God used to shape our course and life as a family. But please hear me on this. Prophecy, dreams, and visions, they are not in any way, shape, or form held in the same authority as scripture, but they are part of the way that God still leads and guides his people. So maybe this, you just pray a simple prayer. God, would you speak to me? Give me the sense of where you're leading and give me the courage to follow. It might be in a word that you have for somebody or a verse that's heavy on your heart for you to share. It might be in a ministry that you want to join or help start. It might be in a conversation that you need to have. But friends, this is what it means to be a prophetic people, to seek God and to speak out. And God uses his spirit in the lives of his people to help shape the course of lives and communities. Friends, this is our origin story. This is in our bones. I mean, in the same way that you could trace Spider-Man's story back to Peter Parker getting bitten by a radioactive spider, or you could trace Batman's story back to Bruce Wayne seeing his parents murdered and turning into this crime fighter that we call Batman. In the same way, you can trace the origins of the church back to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that there is fire and wind in our bones. It is a part of our origin story, and may it be part of our future. Friends, let's not be the kind of people that silence or sensationalize the Spirit. Let's surrender to the Spirit. And, now, and not so normal in our midst today. Amen? Let me pray for us.
In fact, let me just give you a moment to ask Jesus what he wants you to hear and take from this. If you've come in here burdened and heavy laden, ah, I just want to invite you, would you open your heart to Jesus? Oh, Holy Spirit, come. Fill us again. Fill us afresh. Spirit, I, I pray, would you come and reveal, pour out your loves as the scriptures say that you will. Pour out the love of the Father, the love of God into our hearts, please. Spirit, would you bring to mind the words of Jesus? Spirit, would you bind up things that are broken in us? Spirit of God, would you turn mourning into dancing? Would you turn sorrow into gladness? Spirit, would you breathe on us in a way that would rebuild on things that are ruined in our life? Spirit, come. Spirit, heal us. Spirit of God, help us to let go of anger and bitterness. Spirit, help us to forgive those who have wronged us. Spirit, please, point us to Jesus, uh, that we might see his beauty, uh, that we might see his glory, we might see the forgiveness and life that is in him. Oh, and it might cause us to speak out. Spirit, come. Spirit, come. We pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people together say, amen. 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 Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.